Hello and welcome to Nailing It Down, a podcast dedicated to reporting and analyzing current events, tapping whatever knowledge and expertise we can find to get as close to the truth as possible. I'm Mark Kelly. This is part two of Answering Rodney King, my best effort to understand how four white cops could beat the crap out of King and be acquitted, which sparked riots that led to King pleading for an end to the violence. Remember? In part one, I argued the answer to Rodney's question, can we all just get along, was no, and is still no, because our society has been unable or unwilling to reject the belief in white supremacy brought to our shores by Western Europeans. White supremacy was defended from the pulpit and underlined by the pen from our earliest days as a nation. It has dominated much of white American thinking about race for centuries. It's easy to find testimony supporting white supremacy, the belief that dark-skinned people, mostly but not only Africans, are physically and intellectually inferior to light-skinned people. Historians and scientists inserted it into the mainstream narrative way back when and kept repeating it century after century. We know Thomas Jefferson embraced the ideology. Check Answering Rodney King Part 1 for a devastating quote from Tom. It was alive and well in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. A scholar named Ulrich Bonnell Phillips wrote American Negro Slavery in 1918. It accepted the basic premise of black inferiority, and 50 years after the bloody Civil War, it supported the racist view of slavery as a benevolent institution under which black people were well cared for in exchange for free labor. Such vicious nonsense is still part of the public conversation to this day, case in point. Former Fox News host Bill O'Reilly asserted in 2016 that slaves were well-fed and had decent lodgings. For many years, actually into the 1950s, the most popular history text in schools and colleges was The Growth of the American Republic by highly respected historians Samuel Eliot Morrison and Henry Steele Commager. The two scholars mirrored Phillips' perspective in their widely read history textbook of slavery. Morrison and Kamajer wrote, quote, There was much to be said for slavery as a transition status between barbarism and civilization. The majority of slaves were apparently happy, unquote. They also wrote, these are their words, quote, Sambo, whose wrongs moved the abolitionists to wrath and tears, suffered less than any other class in the South from its peculiar institution. Although brought to America by force, the incurably optimistic Negro soon became attached to the country and devoted to his white folks. These distinguished historians wrote that the average slave was childlike, improvident, humorous, prevaricating, and superstitious. How could they be unaware of the hundreds of slave uprisings that began the moment the first African people were dragged to these shores? Scientists added their insidious two cents worth around the turn of the 20th century. Henry Fairfield Osborne, a paleontologist who taught at Columbia University and later served as president of the American Museum of Natural History and the American Association for the Advancement of Science, combined science and religion to argue that white people the Nordic race, as he put it, 
were more highly evolved than Africans or Asians. Osborne used his racist views to support the anti-immigrant movement sweeping the United States in his day. Another scientist, Charles Davenport, helped lead the eugenics movement and convinced the U.S. government that certain groups of people were genetically inferior. The concept initially included Polish, Italian, and Jewish immigrants, some of whom were actually sterilized to prevent them from reproducing, and later expanded to include Mexicans, Japanese, and Indians from Asia and the Philippines. The phony science of eugenics led to passage of the Immigration Act of 1924, limiting the number of people allowed to enter the United States. Sound familiar? An article on understandingrace.org reports race scientists used, quote, eugenics to justify economic and social inequality during the Depression, unquote. They attributed certain characteristics such as criminal behavior, work ethic, and intelligence to race using a theory of genetic inheritance. In other words, you were poor or a criminal or less intelligent because it was in your genes. Here's an indicator of the mainstream reach of white and, let's add, Protestant supremacy. Samuel Morse, inventor of the Telegraph and supporter of the Know-Nothing Party, favored banning Irish Catholics, fearing they would subvert American values and ideals. Turns out American white supremacy and theories of eugenics provided the social framework for none other than Nazi Germany. And while the pool of those considered inferior to whites expanded, the original targets of racism continued to feel the brunt of hateful violence. The new National Memorial for Peace and Justice in Montgomery, Alabama, opened in 2018, offers compelling testimony to the lynching of thousands of people, mostly black, but Italian-American, Asian-American, and Jewish, too, viciously slain, mostly in the South, but in the North, too, throughout the 19th and into the middle of the 20th century. Blacks who moved north to escape such a fate ran into intense racism there, too. As slavery had in earlier centuries, white supremacist hostility now triggered race riots in northern cities. From 1915 to the early 1920s, major demonstrations erupted in St. Louis, Tulsa, Oklahoma, Detroit, and Chicago. And what were our nation's leaders thinking and saying as white supremacy rolled on through another century? The Atlantic magazine offered this story about a conversation at a White House dinner in 1954 between President Eisenhower and Supreme Court Justice Earl Warren, Chief Justice Warren, three months before the Supremes ordered an end to segregated American public schools. The guests that evening, as Warren remembered it, included one of the lawyers who had argued before the court against school integration. After dinner, Warren recalled, Ike took him aside and, referring to the Southern segregationists present, said, quote, These are not bad people. All they are concerned about is to see that their sweet little girls are not required to sit in schools alongside some big, overgrown black bucks. End of quote. Atlantic writer Michael O'Donnell succinctly summarized everything wrong with President Eisenhower's remark. Quote, it was an appalling moment. Here was the president leaning on the chief justice about a pending case while using the racist terms of an overseer. Reports confirm that he, Ike, used racially charged language in private. In 1955, a 14-year-old black teenager from Chicago, Emmett Till, was brutally murdered while visiting family in Mississippi. His killers were brought to trial and acquitted. 
They later sold their story and their admission of guilt to a national magazine. Emma Till's death was the last straw for millions of black Americans. Tired of waiting for bigoted white people to put an end to persecution and injustice, African Americans organized to claim the civil rights they had long been denied. As we know, it meant absorbing even more abuse and white supremacist attitudes. But in 1964, Congress passed the Civil Rights Act, outlawing discrimination based on race, color, religion, sex, or national origin. A year later, Congress expanded the Civil Rights Act and passed additional civil rights legislation, including the Voting Rights Act of 1965. The Voting Rights Act addressed the continuing efforts of Southern white supremacists to prevent African Americans from fully participating in the American political process. Since the days of Reconstruction, after the Civil War, black people had been subjected to myriad forms of abuse and discrimination intended to keep them poor and powerless. One provision of the Voting Rights Act, Section 4, identified states and cities accused of imposing barriers to black participation in the political process. To prevent them from engaging in such illegal practices, those states and cities were required to submit any changes they wanted to make in voting practices to the Federal Justice Department or a federal court in Washington for review. In 2013, in a 5-4 to four vote, the U.S. Supreme Court threw out Section 4. In announcing the decision, Chief Justice John Roberts informed the nation that the coverage formula used to determine if a state or city was discriminating against voters was, as he put it, out of date. Roberts said current evidence showed we've changed our racist ways. Any racial discrimination in voting is too much. But our country has changed in the past 50 years. In the last election, the percentage of African Americans turning out to vote exceeded white voter turnout in five of the six states originally subject to the preclearance requirement. The gap in the sixth state was less than one-half of one percent. When taking such extraordinary steps as subjecting state legislation to preclearance in Washington and applying that regime only to some disfavored states, Congress must ensure that the legislation it passes speaks to current conditions. The coverage formula, unchanged for 40 years, plainly does not do so, and therefore we have no choice but to find that it violates the Constitution. Before the court struck it down, the list of places covered by Section 4 included Alabama, Alaska, Arizona, Georgia, Louisiana, Mississippi, South Carolina, Texas, Virginia, and many counties and municipalities, including Brooklyn, Manhattan, and the Bronx in New York City. In an unusual move, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg presented her dissent to the ruling in court from the bench. She quoted Martin Luther King Jr. and said his legacy and the nation's commitment to justice were disserved by the decision. In a written dissent, Ginsburg said Congress must have seen continued evidence of racism in the voting process when the Voting Rights Act was reauthorized in 2006 by large margins. 390 to 33 in the House, and it was unanimously renewed in the Senate. George W. Bush was president at that time. He said the law was, quote, an example of our continued commitment to a united America where every person is valued and treated with dignity and respect. Ginsburg called the 5-4 to four decision striking down Section 4 an egregious error. She wrote, quote, the VRA, Voting Rights Act, is no ordinary legislation. 
It is extraordinary because Congress embarked on a mission long delayed and of extraordinary importance to realize the purpose and promise of the 15th Amendment. The 15th Amendment barred racial discrimination in voting and gave Congress, not the courts, the power to enforce it. So who's right? Have the states and cities formerly held accountable for racial discrimination in the electoral process changed their tune? Despite Chief Justice Roberts' assertion that our country has changed, I would argue it hasn't changed that much. Since the ruling in 2013, states and communities across the country, especially those controlled by Republicans, have engaged in these practices. Purges of voting rolls that throw out voters who are still eligible to vote. Intimidating challenges to minority voters when they go to the polls. Closing polling places and making it harder for some voters to get to the polls. Gerrymandering, redrawing voting districts to guarantee their party's victory. New voter ID laws that hit minority voters hardest. Moving election day to a time of the year that makes it harder for some voters, like farmers, to get away from their work to vote. And reducing early voting opportunities. Some of these acts had been thwarted by Section 4 of the Voting Rights Act or by determined legal action by minority voters. In numerous cases, measures dropped because of the law were reintroduced shortly after it was removed. I am reluctant to accuse the Chief Justice of the United States of embracing a form of white supremacy that would blind him to the extensive racial discrimination and racial hatred still plaguing our nation in every aspect of our lives, including the political process. But the Supreme Court's decision does not bar Congress from adopting a new Voting Rights Act, and people are already working on that. The Voting Rights Advancement Act, championed by the Human Rights Campaign, among others, would modernize the formula for determining if a community is discriminating in the electoral process, ensure that last-minute voting changes do not adversely affect voters by requiring public disclosure of all voting changes six months before an election, and give the Attorney General authority to send observers to any jurisdiction where there is a risk of discrimination on Election Day or during early voting periods. Contrary to the Chief Justice's rosy assessment of the landscape, the Human Rights Campaign believes voters are more vulnerable to discrimination now than any time since the Voting Rights Act was signed into law more than 50 years ago. And, I would add, not just voters. With a white supremacist in the White House, virtually any and all minority groups, immigrants, the LGBTQ communities, people of color, Basically, anyone who doesn't fit into the Nordic category scientist Henry Fairfield Osborne elevated above the rest of humanity is at risk of abuse and discrimination. We'll examine the damage being done by a racist president and others in part three of Answering Rodney King. That's it for this go-round. My email is still kellymark2, K-E-L-L-E-Y-M-A-R-K-2 at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. Our theme music is Awkward Situation by Bortex. Part of the mission here is to provide a corrective to the misleading and deceitful harangues of those who have been punching the daylights out of dedicated professional journalists for far too long. Together, we can make a difference. I'm Mark Kelly, and this is Nailing It Down.